All right, today is Pentecost, right? I love Pentecost. We've got our, it's like the one liturgical thing we do is we change the color of the fabric up here to mark it. And in our tradition, if you don't know, Pentecost is when we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' followers after his death and resurrection. And so we're going to be unpacking a little bit about the spirit aspect of God to start out a new sermon series that we're going to be doing at least on the Sundays when I preach. And I'm going to call this sermon series Bird God because I'm going to be drawing from a book called When God Was a Bird. So I'm not going to be like preaching right from it, but I'm just going to be sort of working with some of its thoughts. I haven't actually finished it myself, um, so I don't even know if I would like endorse everything in it. But there were some things that I was reading that I thought, oh, we could... We could grapple with this a little bit. And so while you certainly don't have to read along, I know for some people you like to have a little something to read with the sermon series, so that's the one I'll be interacting with. And just to set some expectations, since I sent it out in an email that I'd be talking about this bird god, I'm not going to be talking specifically about that aspect yet today, but we're going to start the series by just like laying a little bit of groundwork here about the Holy Ghost. So allow me to start this Pentecost Sunday with a story. So this last Tuesday, I think it was somebody in my small group um, who was saying that they were going to be going for a couple of days down to a place called Asheville, Indiana, right? So for those of you on Zoom or who may not know, this is not like big Nashville, Tennessee. This is Nashville, Indiana. It's a little more modest. It's kind of a little touristy town down in the southern hills. And I grew up in Indianapolis. If you grew up in Indianapolis, you know Nashville pretty well. It's a little getaway an hour from the city. And so I was remembering the last time that I was there was actually eight years ago, almost to the date. And I remember it especially because it was right before I made the best decision of my life to drive to Minnesota and to go on my first date with Rachel. So I know. My family had rented this little cabin down there. It was my parents and my sisters and their families. All their, all their kids were born at that point. And I was at this cabin and I was talking with Rachel on the phone and I was like, you know, I, I could just sort of swing by Minnesota on my way home to Michigan. <laughs> we could just see if there's something to this. So just a little 12-hour detour that, you know, worked out well for us. <laughs> but I was thinking about this trip to Nashville because of that. And, and one of the things that struck with me from before I went to Minnesota was a, a pretty scary incident, actually, that I had with my niece Maggie. And so Maggie was two years old at the time. And she's, she's like a little kid with curly red hair and lots of freckles. And she was the kind of kid who just like could not be contained. Some of you might have been a kid like that. Maybe you've had a kid like that or you do have a kid like that. That was Maggie. And we were sitting outside at a restaurant. Um, and it had a little bit of fencing. So there's like this really busy street that is like the main street that goes down Nashville. It's a two-lane street that gets pretty backed up. So we're on, this, we're on this patio, and there's a fence, but it's the kind of fence that's like, you know, two or three big planks, the kind that you can crawl through, right? So at the very moment when none of the adults are paying enough attention, Maggie climbs through one of those planks and just takes off for a joy run down the street, right? So the traffic was slow, but I mean, she, she ran right into the traffic, starts going down the street. We've got everybody like, oh my gosh, I remember her dad trying to grab her as she went through the fence and her, you know, giving this like impish gleam in her eye of like, oh no, I'm just going. And then I remember hopping over the fence, I think along with both of her parents and probably my sister Lindsay, and we were just, you know, we're running and she was fast, that little kid in that diaper. 
And so we're yelling at people, and so we were like getting others involved like down the street, like they were getting in the, in the traffic and they were stopping the cars, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, there's a two-year-old out there. And I can laugh about it a little now, even though I still feel the terror of it, because she's 10, and she's fine, and she's actually still a really good runner. She runs cross-country and plays soccer, <laughs> and she's still got that gleam in her eyes. She does some theater as well, so it was full Maggie. But I just thought, man, she was just like Maggie the uncontainable, right? No fence was going to hold that kid. And you might think, okay, what's this have to do with Pentecost, Emily? Well, Pentecost is when we celebrate the unleashing of the uncontainable spirit of God released into the world, right? And Maggie running into traffic and causing all of that disruption and a little bit of chaos, I think is actually a pretty decent picture of what that first Pentecost looked like. Right? There was no fence, no container, no person, nothing was going to hold the Spirit back when that came rushing in. And on that day, the Spirit of the Creator came rolling in and infused the world with a renewed vitality. Right? It like, took a joy run into the heart of all of our human messiness. And I got an amen from Addie. Yeah, girl. Yeah. Was this uncontainable Spirit around before that first Pentecost? Absolutely. Right? But on that day, God seemed to want humans to understand full well that this spirit, which came in the form of a mighty wind and tongues of fire, that this spirit could be accessed by humans in our surroundings and in our bodies. Right? That we can be set alight with the energy of the creator, of the life force. And that was the day that humans were gifted with this heightened sense of that potential, right? That God was nature, fire, and wind, and God was in us, and we knew it. All right, so I'm going to read Acts 2, which Lydia read a bit to us earlier. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a noise came from heaven, and it sounded like a strong wind blowing. And this noise filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw something that looked like flames of fire. And the flames were separated, and they stood over each person there. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak different languages. The Holy Spirit was giving them the power to do this. So in our faith... You know, we often talk about God as a trinity of persons, right? an inherent relationship of three beings in one. And that's a paradox, and we know it doesn't really make any logical sense within the limits of sort of our imaginations, but it's like the best way that we have to talk about something that's indescribable. Right? The word trinity is actually never used in the Bible, not even once. This idea of a trinity was codified later, later at a council called the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. And this picture of a three-in-one God as humans trying to express how we've experienced the divine in distinct ways and distinct forms over the last several thousand years, right? That there's a creator God, but that this creator God seems to manifest in distinguishable ways that we relate to uniquely. Right, so there's one aspect of God that is like the source of all. Then there's another aspect of God that is called the logos, or the word, or wisdom, or later embodied as Jesus. So that one's a little complicated. Right, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, was, word is logos. So the idea that 
Jesus, the word, was somehow like at creation in some other form. There's some thought that this logos was also manifest as wisdom, lady wisdom in the Bible, and then later as Jesus. So that's the second person of the Trinity. And then there's an aspect of God that's experienced as spirit or breath. And in the scriptures, we see all three of these present, both in Genesis 1 and in Jesus' baptism are the most obvious examples. Now stick with me, because I know that's a lot here. Any way we talk about God is metaphor, right? And all of our metaphors for God will always fall short because they are only metaphors, right? They can never fully, accurately depict the divine because while God is relational and makes himself known to humans, God is also beyond our comprehension and cannot be restrained by the boxes in which we try and put God, right? And this is another paradox, right? It's another both and, that God is three in one and God is both beyond us and intimately close. And if we want God to sit neatly in binary categories, we are gonna be disappointed. Now, while I don't agree with everything that the early Christian author Augustine of Hippo said, I do think he was on to something. And he said, it's easier to say what God is not than what God is. Because if we have understood, then what we've understood is not God. All right, so just when we think that maybe we've got God figured out, that's the time to be wary. And this is why in our Bible stories, I think that God didn't want their followers to create images and then to worship those images. Right, so the command to not create idols was a call to not reduce God to something that humans could master. Right? But instead, God called their followers just simply to worship them as Yahweh, I am. Right? Worship this deity, not as male or female, not as gold or silver, but just simply as a God who exists beyond everything else that's been created in time, this divine force that we call God just simply is. Right, but when we talk about God as like an esoteric force that just is, that's beyond our understanding, that's hard to connect with. Right? And so we have this reality that we've got this God who is like out there and big and enormous, but doesn't want to feel distant and wants to be known by us. And so this God has to use our limited signs and symbols and human language and culturally brown metaphors to try and communicate with us and connect with us. Right, to give us some kind of understanding of their nature and of their love and to help us grasp this paradox, right? the enormity and the intimacy of the divine. So traditionally, the metaphor that we use for the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right? to describe this sort of relational or the interrelated aspects of God. But two of those three words are terms describing male humans. Now, it's not surprising Right, that humans in male-centered cultures use masculine language to try and make sense of God. And it's, it's not even wrong as a metaphor. Right? It's, it's fine, but it's an incomplete metaphor if that's the primary or the only way that we conceive of the Trinity because it limits our concept of who God is. Right? And we know that the Bible also uses feminine metaphors for God. Right, they're just employed a little bit less. They're rarely used in churches, although that is changing pretty rapidly. Isaiah shows us that God is a laboring mother who will not be silenced and cannot be stopped as she makes a way for her children to come to life in the world. In the Psalms, we see God as a nursing mother. In the Gospels, 
God is a mama hen who's gathering her chicks under her wings. Jesus at one point uses actually a pair of metaphors in parables to try and describe how God feels when, like, when people who are lost have been found. And so the first one he uses is a male metaphor. It's a shepherd that's found a sheep. And the other one is a female metaphor, a woman celebrating because she found a lost coin. In yet another parable, Jesus speaks of the spreading of God's good realm being like yeast in a dough that a woman is kneading. Right? And so God, in that metaphor, is that woman working the dough and allowing that goodness to spread. Right? And this, this is just scratching the surface. This is just barely touching it. The Holy Spirit is most often feminine in the scripture. It's feminine pronouns. And this lady wisdom that I was describing, this female personification of wisdom that's found in Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, that female personification is also called Sophia in Greek. It's associated with that second person of the Trinity who later came in the flesh as Jesus. Jesus at one point actually alludes to the idea that he is the personification of wisdom. I think it's in the Gospel of Luke. I didn't actually go back and look it up. But I know it's also in 1 Corinthians, talks about Jesus as wisdom. And so from that view, Jesus holds within his body the feminine wisdom known as Sophia. Right? So Jesus, while being historically male, can be seen to bring the conceptions of male and female together. And in that way, I think there's space for interpreting Jesus as a non-binary being. But even if we describe the Trinity as mother, child, and Holy Spirit, that's still two-thirds contained to humans as metaphor, isn't it? So there's actually a theologian and ethicist at Hope College here in Michigan. His name's David Cunningham. And I'd read an essay by him oh, maybe 10 years ago. And he was saying, you know, gosh, we don't even need to contain our metaphors to people. Right? We, can, we can expand on that. He says that we should use, well, not should, but he's like one thing he would suggest is using source, wellspring, and living water which I know that I've said before because it's kind of a preference of mine, the source, the wellspring, and the living water to describe what was traditionally the Father, Son, and Spirit. And he says this is a good idea or helpful because it gets rid of sort of the gender assumptions, right? Because oftentimes the Spirit has been seen as more feminine and in a lot of church traditions, the Spirit is seen as sort of, you know, sort of a little bit more below the Father and the Son, takes a little bit more of a backseat arena, not in the Pentecostal tradition I come from, but I think in, in some other spaces that's been true. Right? And so there's a little bit of like a pecking order that's been implied. Now, I, you know, I like source, wellspring, and living water, but even with that, I know it doesn't capture the whole of God, right? It just, it's, like, it's like a little mosaic tile that's like trying to give us a better picture. What I like about it is that I think it helps us visualize some of the functions of God. I'm going to get, I'll get a little mathy here. Maybe, maybe you can help me out here, Joe. So source, if you can picture a source like an underground water source, right? So you've got all this water that is nurturing for life and that is sitting there. And then you've got the wellspring, right? Which is where that, that water springs up and starts bubbling to the surface. You know, almost like a volcano erupting, but, you know, less violent, more water, less lava. And the way I think of it, if it's helpful, and this may be totally off, but I think of God as just being so, um, like, we know that there's like what, 23 dimensions? I don't know how many dimensions there are. I don't even think we know. We can conceive of three or four of them. 
And so if the source is actually maybe more contained in all of these dimensions, then maybe the wellspring is the source trying to punch into our three or four that we can comprehend through Jesus. Right? It's like punching a hole into the surface and like rupturing space and time to say, if you want to know a little bit about what this source is like, here's an example. It may or may not be the only example, but here's an example, the logos, the wellspring that is coming up, that's bubbling from the source. And then the living water then is the spirit. Right? So in John 7, Jesus says, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them, right? So drink from me, but also those rivers will flow within you. And by this, it says he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Right, so in this picture that Jesus is trying to describe to us, he's saying experiencing the Holy Spirit is like taking a really cold, like a sip of cold water on a really hot day. Right, so if you've been out biking or running or you've been working in the yard all day and you come inside and you have like a nice cold drink of water or Gatorade or whatever it is that refreshes you, say that's what it's like. Right? It's meant to nourish the community of people who are devoted to this God of love. And it's saying that this living water is connected to Jesus. So the idea is, is if we understand a little bit about what Jesus was about, right? If we understand that Jesus was coming to restore people who needed to be healed to their communities, and if we understand that he was coming to free the oppressed, right? To help people who maybe were feeling like... um, any sort of shackles that would keep them from understanding the expansiveness of God's love for them or for other people around them. That was what he was doing, right? That he was preaching liberation and he was loving expansively and he was hanging out with the people who were on the peripheries of their community as well as the people who were like the in crowd. He was hanging out with everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is saying to us that if we understand that, that there's a source that comes up within us when we tap into that stream and when we are doing these things in our lives and in our communities, there is like an unending, unquenchable river of living water that can help fuel us and source us. And now there might be setbacks, right? We might get discouraged. There might be times in our culture, in our nation, where it feels like, yeah, that is not happening as much as it could right now. Family members might be mistreating us. I'm doing a wedding next weekend with people whose families are not supportive of their wedding, right? Life can be rough and unfair, but this is telling us that the unleashing of this kind of work of the Spirit, it's uncontainable. It is uncontainable, right? That there is hope in this future that we can hold on to even when it feels like hope is small and hope is narrow, Right, and so I drew my metaphor of this uncontainable spirit with Maggie, you know, taking off down the road. And it's not a perfect metaphor, because if Maggie's the spirit, like Maggie was actually in danger, right? This two-year-old could have, that would, right. But the spirit is unquenchable. The spirit is ever-flowing. The spirit is not going to die, right? But the spirit, when it's at work, sometimes it is a little scary, And it can be turbulent. 
And there can be moments where it's not clear what is going to happen. And there might be people who have been bystanders who are watching it, who get called on and activated to come in and to help. And they may not have even like, expected that. Because sometimes systems have to be reordered and rearranged and dismantled in order to be reimagined. And that is messy work. And that's work that I think is actually happening in the American church right now. And it is messy. It is messy. So we have these two things, right? We have the spirit as this nourishing water fountain, this cold drink on a hot day that can energize and refresh us, but it is also a disruptor. And on that first Pentecost, right, we saw winds that were blowing through the room and we saw tongues of fire and we saw people speaking languages they had never spoken before. And they go down onto the streets and they're speaking these languages and people thought they were drunk out of their minds, right? But this was the sign of the spirit. It disrupted the norm and it broke down these barriers that divided people, right? The spirit allowed the disciples to communicate with people with whom they couldn't communicate before. That was the first sign of the expansive work of the spirit to be more inclusive and to break down barriers, right? And I think that we're going to need to understand both aspects of the spirit here in the coming years, I didn't even write out an ending. I just want to talk a little bit, frankly. You know, I've been talking with some other pastors and chaplains and theologians and people who are, you know, kind of watching what's going on in our country and in the church. And I think there's this general sense of like, oh, it, it could get a little rough again, right? We might have a former president declare a run again next year. And that, that is hard for a lot of us, right? And so we might need to understand the disrupting power of the spirit. And we might need to understand that there's a hope that we can hold on to, that even if things aren't looking great, that there is an uncontainable aspect of the spirit. And I also think we're gonna need to understand this cold drink of water. And I do think that even if, even if it doesn't really feel like a break, right now we're in a little bit of a spot where I think a lot of us have been feeling weary, we're pandemic worn down, I think parents in particular are just, I, I can't even imagine dealing with the school systems, parents and teachers right now. So the people of God, the people of love, tired. And so what I want us to look at and think about and meditate on is this other aspect of the spirit for a little while. It's like cold drink of water. And so we're gonna be talking about this spirit as nature, as infusing the world around us so that we can be really deliberate about sort of refreshing ourselves and renewing ourselves and making sure that we've got sort of the energy for the disrupting part of the spirit should that time come. Right? Because God is love and God is comfort and God wants to be with us and to give us that restoration. And so with that, I'm gonna invite us for the meditation to picture that. So if you're newer, we tend to have a minute or two of either silence or of a guided meditation. And so if you would like to participate in that, what I would like to suggest is that maybe we picture ourselves outdoors somewhere, a place that makes you feel restored and happy, with a tall glass of cold whatever you love, iced tea, lemonade, I don't care, and it's hot and you're enjoying that and just feel it go through your body and imagine that's what the spirit is like regenerating us. So let's spend about a minute doing that and I'll let us know when that time is up. Holy Spirit, we know you're here.
Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in this world. We thank you that you're a refresher and a disruptor. I ask that you would give us these coming months, just give us refreshment, give us tools that we can lean into that become reflexive to us, where we can draw strength and energy, and that you would give us wisdom to know when we need to go into those, those, those times where we can refresh and pull back so that we can be ready to help out with anything that's going on with that disruptive aspect of the spirit. I ask that you would give us eyes to be able to see what your spirit is doing even when it's messy. And that you could activate us so that we can be part of the work that you're doing. We thank you that you reorder and dismantle and reimagine systems as part of the, the justice aspect of who you are. And so we say, come Holy Spirit, we invite that. We ask for your comfort, we ask for your energy, we ask for your power as the people of God doing our best to love in this world. Amen.